0: Burn the Boats is proud to support VoteVets, the nation's largest and most impactful progressive veterans organization. To learn more or to join their mission, go to VoteVets.org.
1: We live in a a world and a society where we watch people kill people and then have to sit around and have Oftentimes, white people decide on whether or not those people are going to be penalized for the things that they have done. If you do not think that causes trauma for Black people, I want to invite you to stop for a minute and think about how that might affect us.
0: I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Burn the Boats, a podcast about big decisions, On Burn the Boats, I interview political leaders and other history makers about choices they confront when failure is not an option. My guest today is Tyler Merritt, an activist, author, and public speaker. His video monologue titled Before You Call the Cops garnered national attention after the murder of George Floyd in 2020. And it's been viewed tens of millions of times. In his new book, I Take My Coffee Black, Tyler talks about his experiences as a black man in America as well as privilege, religion, multiculturalism, and even musical theater. Before we begin, though, I wanna share the monologue that started it all. Here it is.
1: Before you call the cops, I just want you to know the first thing that I did when I woke up this morning was yell at my alarm clock. My parents were raised in the South. I have to roll tide or they'll disown me. They raised me in Las Vegas. That city still has my heart. I hate spiders. I'm a vegetarian. I'm not proud about him. I've done goat yoga. I'm really not proud about that. I can tell you every single word off the NWA Straight Outta Compton album I can also sing you every single word from Oklahoma. Bananas are disgusting. I am a Christian. I spend almost every Sunday morning teaching kids in Sunday school. I am often asked if I am Muslim. I'm okay with that. I'm pretty much convinced. If you met my mother, you'd automatically become a better person. My father is a veteran. He taught me how to say yes sir and yes ma'am to everyone that I meet. I don't hate our president. I pray for him. I love basketball. This is my niece, Allie. This is my nephew, Declan. This is my nephew, Jordan. I've never been to jail. I've never owned a gun. I hate that anyone at all Merritt, welcome to Burn the Boats. Hey, Ken, thanks for having me, man. Um, Really, first, let me say this, bro. um, Thank you for your service in the military, and I know people say all that all the time, and that's a thing that's said, but being a military brat, I don't think people necessarily understand the toll that takes place on families when mothers and fathers choose to serve in the military. And I want to personally thank you for, for that piece, man.
0: Thanks, Tyler. I, I appreciate that. And I'm going to ask you uh, about your dad at some point. We've all got complicated <laughs> relationships with, uh, with our fathers, right? For sure. My dad was Air Force as well, and uh, it sounds like yours was stationed in um, Vegas, probably Fallon uh, with those. Nellis, Nellis. N- that's what I meant, Nellis. I was—I yeah. I went through Fallon, the, the little Top Gun program there, but um, Nellis, <laughs> and, and he took those secret flights out to Area 51 doing God knows what. Uh, I read your book, <laughs> uh, but I want to talk about the video first because, uh, man, we could not agree more about spiders. Um, <laughs> I try, I know that every creature in God's beautiful creation has a purpose. And that's what I, what I tell my kids when I catch them and pretend to take them outside. Uh, but you know, half the time they're going down the toilet and I feel bad every time.
1: The only difference between you and I is I have no spider death guilt <laughs> at all whatsoever. Zero. zero. <laughs>
0: well my my kids try to tell me and we are way in the weeds here. Uh we'll get to important stuff in a second, but every time I kill a spider, I'm just strengthening the gene pool because the strong ones right. survive. That's kind of scary when you think about it.
1: Man, see see you just put that in a... I, man, I'm over here thinking that I am I'm fighting the cause against them and you just proved the point that spiders will never die. Thanks. <laughs> Uh, so, uh,
0: l- give us the context for the video, and um, and we'll make sure to run it at the, at the top of this episode so listeners have it. But from hearing your interviews about it and some of what you've written about it, I gather that it was well thought out. It was strategic. You sometimes get the idea with a lot of these viral things that they're just spontaneous. But I, I want you to talk about it because— we're going to address some of the criticism that the video received. And it wasn't just some off-the-cuff remarks you made. You were thinking about the audience you wanted to reach.
1: For sure, man. I'll tell you, when... Sometimes I joke with friends on saying I wish that I just made like really funny cat videos or, you know, I had a child that would, you know, say something crazy and I could post it online and a million people viewed it. But I have zero desire to want to be a viral sensation instead I have always had the intent of wanting to have an impact on social justice, on racial reconciliation, and a better understanding um, of people in general, and to bring love and to bring laughter and to bring humanity into our population. And so I wanted to create content that was going to do that through the Tyler Merritt Project. And when I created the video Before You Call the Cops, which has now been seen over 100 million times, I didn't just loosely enter into making or creating that piece my whole goal was to like I do in my book taking consideration how important proximity could be and to bet on proximity to bet that if you let people in that proximity will um, create, A sense of wanting to have empathy for somebody, and it will eliminate fear. And that was my hope And Before You Called the Cops. I just could have never imagined that it would have had the impact that it did. I want to
0: stay here for a minute because this section of your book about proximity, I think, is going to stay with people the longest. And at at the top of it, you quote uh, Martin Luther King Jr. I want to read that. He said, People fail to get along because they fear each other. They fear each other because they don't know each other. They don't know each other because they have not communicated with each other. That's your goal. Step one, bridge the gap through communication.
1: Yeah, 100%. And, and man, I talk in my book about the Martin, uh, Martin Luther King Jr. and the Malcolm X concept, where as a black man in America, so many of us stay angry, you know, all the time, 24 hours a day. So the idea of going in the midst of this anger for so many reasons as black men in America, I'm also going to take the time to explain myself, to get closer to somebody who I do not know or to take that risk or chance, which on some levels can literally cause us our life to cross over and make the decision to allow someone to have a better understanding who I am for a greater cause. And that was the... That was the goal in my book. And I talk about this on other podcasts and um, in other places that I speak. It is not my job as an African-American man to humanize myself to anyone. Um, I think there are a lot of, and I mean this respectfully, I don't know how many times white men wake up and go, today my singular job is to humanize myself to America. But that's something that Black men are continually having to do in the United States, not because we should, not because we have to, but some of us in this fight for social justice have decided to cross over that line and say, look, we are so much more than just our skin color, but our skin color should be enough. You have talked about this as a life and death issue. Which it's not for
0: white men. I never have to to wake up and think about the chances of me coming home. I never have to worry. I mean, I worry about other things when I'm getting pulled over by the police, but I don't worry about getting shot. Can you speak to that ever-present reality of your humanity for you being a life-and-death issue in a way it's not
1: for me? sure first i want to say this and and i want to say this in respect to your listeners that i'm not so naive to think that there are not white men white people we'll we'll say we'll sit on we'll sit with white men for a second that don't have the fear, like any American might have, that when they leave out of the house, something could happen to them. There may be some sort of violent crime. There may be something in their life that presents them from getting back home to their children, to their wife, to their husband. The difference, though, is, just like you said, most of the time, I would argue that when you get pulled over by a cop, now, I don't want to put words into your mouth, but I'm going to assume they're, here are probably the top three or four things that you think of. You think, officer, why did you pull me over? You think, was I speeding? You think, I wonder if I can work myself out of this ticket. You think, how much is this ticket going to cost me? Right? Like, I would say that your your head probably leans in that direction. Grant, granted, I'm just guessing. But for myself, though, as a black man, I will be 100%. I'm not trying to be hyperbolic here. When those blue lights go on behind me in Nashville, Tennessee, immediately, Ken, I turn down my radio, I roll down my window, I check my seatbelt, I immediately start to pull over the side of the road. I put my hands to ten and two. I I open up my glove compartment to make sure anything that is in there I can have easily accessible. I take my driver's license and set it, my driver's license and my insurance card, set it on my lap. My thought when I pull over is, my God, I just want to be able to continue this drive after I'm pulled over. One because I, I'll be honest with you. When I see a black man killed on the side of the road on a video, that's trauma for me. That's not just a video that I get to click on and go, man, that's sad. I wonder what happened. That is trauma that I take on as a black man. But even more so, I am very aware that I am a six foot two black man with dreadlocks and that that can be scary to some people. And people walk up on me not knowing who they think I am. They don't know that I love my mother more than life itself. They don't know that I teach Sunday school to kids. They don't know that I was probably listening to a Broadway musical on my, on my, uh, in my car. They don't know any of these things that are 100% me as a black man. But what, I, what they do know is that I am six foot two. I can be intimidating and my whole entire job, Ken, is to make sure that I live through being pulled over. That ticket is like probably ninth or tenth on my list of things I'm concerned about in that moment.
0: I'm gonna ask you to do something uncomfortable, which is make it make it visceral for us. Why do you put your ID? In your lap. And I know the answer, but it reminds me of a conversation I had with another friend of mine who said he always leaves his insurance in the visor Mm -hmm. above him Mm -hmm. because he doesn't want to be seen to reach over anywhere that the officer can't see where his hands are. So, you know, make it clear to us why is not it important to have that ID in your lap instead of a pocket?
1: Simply put, and not to be dramatic, though I am definitely one to make things dramatic, um, it's a matter of life and death for me. As soon as that officer of the law looks around the corner, usually with the hand on their waist a a few steps away from my car, and they say to me, usually, um, sir, do you know why I'm pulling you over, or whatever it may be. I am hoping that I have provided them with every single tool that they need to keep themselves safe. So if they can look in and they can see okay, this guy has his driver's license sitting right there on his lap and accessible. I don't even want to have it like in my hand ready to hand him over to him because I don't want him to get the idea that I'm moving toward him in a way that, you know, I want him to be him or her to be able to see everything that they can see right there in front of them. Now, here's where it gets tricky, Ken. your listeners might think to themselves That's a smart black man right there. Now, that's the way that you survive uh, uh, running with the cops. Or you might have listeners that might be saying, that's ridiculous that you have to do that. Or that's a precaution that you're going too far. But let me tell you what my mom would say if she was listening to this. My mom would say, boy, you do whatever it is you need to do to make sure that you get your ass home tonight. Whatever that is. So this is not time to put your pride in front of of anybody. This is not the time to try to prove who you are or hope that they know that you have a video that's gone viral or that Jimmy Kimmel wrote a forward for your book. When you get pulled over, son, you are a black man. And in that moment, you have one task, and that is to make it home.
0: Tyler, you said that one of the most important things... That, uh, that folks like me can do is elevate voices like yours, elevate and amplify black voices. But I find this, this irreconcilable tension in that because uh, on the one hand, I totally agree. On the other hand, it seems an unfair burden to you to hand you the mic every time and say, speak for black people. And I'm wondering, how heavy that mic must get sometimes, because you don't owe me, you don't owe anybody anything, yet it falls to you and and folks with your persuasive abilities to grab that mic and and preach, as you've put it. Does that feel burdensome?
1: Um, burdensome, I'd say, is probably an understatement, but I've said this before and I believe this strongly, Ken. Um We are all trying to put this fire out. We are all trying to put this racial, um, racism in America, burning bonfire of craziness out. And everybody is attempting to do it in their own way. And all of our hope is that one day we can walk in this United States equally. And some of us are going to do whatever we have to do to accomplish that task. And I want to talk about elevating Black voices for a minute. I feel like elevating Black voices is is important. But before someone can assist in elevating a Black person, a Black voice, this is going to sound asinine to you, Ken. It's going to sound asinine, and I know. But above elevating, the first is to believe what it is that we say. One of the most exhausting things— And when I tell you exhausting, one of the most exhausting things that people that are not Black cannot understand is how difficult it is to just simply get people to believe our stories, to just believe that what happens in our life every single day, Ken, is what actually happens. So I just recap to you my experience of getting pulled over as a Black man. And the energy it takes me to then say to somebody, no, I promise that's actually what happens. And for somebody to go, but what if someone comes up? Now, that's cool, but I'm telling you, this is my story and what I do. But not every day. What if a black police officer walks up? If a black police officer walks up, I do the same stuff. Like, what what do you not understand? How many different times do I have to tell you that my experience is significant to me as a black person? And though we are not all monolithic, we are all in the same boat And that people do not want to believe us. So there's that first piece, right, of just getting people to believe us. Then there's a second piece in hoping that people will elevate our stories. And then there's that last responsibility, like you were asking about, um, the weight of that. Not everybody should carry it. Not everybody has to carry it. Um, Black women have been carrying that weight in the voting booth for years. (laughs) Black women have been carrying that weight in the midst of raising um, their children for years. But sometimes you have to decide what are those things that you wanna put on your back and make them known to people. And for myself, I have decided that I'm going to lean into proximity I'm going to lean into love. I'm going to lean into understanding. And for me, I do not care what the cost is going to be because our lives are too important. And I have zero hate, which this might be a good way to tune into other things we'll talk about, but I have zero hate for any other Black folks that go, Tyler, this ain't your job. You need not do this. And you need to stop. We're going to disagree amongst ourselves like because we're human, but it's a mission that I've taken on, and I hope that one of these days when I'm gone, people will look back and say, I don't remember Tyler for much, but I remember how he loved people.
0: That's beautiful. And I just want to acknowledge that I'm aware in asking you to relive this and to carry that mic for for this half hour we're talking, I'm asking you to carry a burden, and it's not a fair one. Um, and I I wouldn't ask you unless you you were out there and volunteering to be that voice. Um, we talk a lot about trauma on this show, I think, because I'm a vet, and a lot of our guests are vets, and it's an audience that, um, that seems to value our perspective on it. But hearing you talk about the trauma of watching what has been happening to black men. I mean, granted, it's been happening for forever, but it's been captured on video in the last decade or so. And that is evocative to me of the same re traumatizing exposure that v- veterans uh, experience post combat. Yeah. Seeing brothers. Uh, brothers and sisters being killed in front of your eyes. Have you given it that, looked at it through that
1: lens? Only on this level. Coming from a military family, I understand the brotherhood that takes place with those that are in the armed forces. It's like something you can't ever understand. This is a such a mild comparison. When I tell you it's mild, forgive me if anybody takes offense to this comparison I'm going to make. Um, but just hear my heart in this. In my book, I talk about playing in a band, right? And I played in a band for years. And I say there's nothing like walking on stage with your brothers in a band. There's nothing like it in the world. And it's true. There's a very specific thing that very few people in the world understand what it's like to walk on on stage in a band and have people sing the words that you've created. Not everybody gets that in the same sense. Um, There's a, if you choose to go in the military, the training that you go to go through the psychological warfare that takes place that's made and created to bring you together as brothers in the military. Unless you're a part of that, you don't get it. Like I can try to understand what my father has been through with that, but I don't really get it. So when he was in the military during, um, desert storm and he ended up not going. And we were in Nellis, and he so badly wanted to go. The best way he could communicate to me is to say, Tyler, it would be like rehearsing for a play all of your life and never getting to actually perform it, right? And I still didn't get what he was trying to say. In my mind, I'm like, Dad, you didn't have to go to war, bro. Like, represent, you know? (laughs) But to him, he's going, no, you don't understand the stories that I lived through with these brothers in which I serve, On the same level, but very different. When you are a black person in America, we walk in a very significant lane that only we can get. It's one that we can't explain to you if you're not black. It's one that we try to. It's one we make jokes about, like you're invited to the barbecue, meaning for those that don't know what that means, it's our joke of saying like, yo, you're cool enough to come and hang out with us, but don't bring the potato salad because it's probably going to be nasty. You know what I mean? (laughs) Like we're saying come and be a part of our community, but you actually can't unless you walk through it. And with that in mind, Ken, when we watch trauma, and it is trauma for us when we see somebody who looks like us lynched, lynched on camera. And then we spend, you've read my book, then we spend so much of our energy having to defend the thing that we saw in front of our eyes, Ken. Right now we're waiting for uh the trial whenever people listen to this to give them some concept. Um the Ahmad Aubrey trial is taking place right now and there are people that are that are um that are in court, the people that murdered Ahmad Aubrey and we're waiting to see what the what, what's going to happen there. We live in a in a world in a society where we watch people kill people and then have to sit around and have Oftentimes, white people decide on whether or not those people are going to be penalized for the things that they have done. If you do not think that causes trauma for black people, I want to invite you to stop for a minute and think about how that might affect us in the same way years and years and years ago where black people would get lynched, literally lynched and hanging from a tree. And white men would look at that and that image would become trauma for them in a way of thinking that those people are not human. Those individuals hanging from that tree are not human. And then the trauma that takes place from the black person walking by and seeing someone that looks like them hanging from a tree, what that does to us. What that does to us is in 2021, I'm still talking about that trauma. And I'm hoping to God, Ken, I'm hoping to God, man. I don't have kids right now, not that I know of, Uh, (laughs) geez. I'm hoping to God that my kids one day won't have to walk through the same kind of trauma that I do in 2021.
0: I think it's worth calling out that one of of the compounding features of that kind of trauma is that the victims are re-victimized every time it's talked about in the media. And, yes. you know, I do it uh, without thinking about it. We call what's going on now the Ahmed Arbery trial. It's not. It's the trial of his murderers. Yes. But it seemed like George Floyd was on trial. It seems like Ahmaud Arbery is on trial. He is not. And yet we're going to have to relitigate his decision to go for a jog through a white neighborhood, right? Um, right. And I've, you know, I've lost buddies in uniform, and we don't second guess every decision they made. We, in fact, elevate their sacrifice. We name schools after them. Yet, in the trials that that we've seen following the the murders of of young black men, they seem to be the ones on trial.
1: Ken, you just you, man, you knocked it out of the park with that example, man. Is that we're losing our life just for living? Just, just for living. When you begin, when people begin to ask, but yeah, but what did Ahmed Aubrey do? He jogged. Uh, that's a, that's a hard thing to swallow to explain to your kids. It's a hard thing to swallow to 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 anyone that you're trying to explain something and say. No matter what it was they did, did they deserve to die? And something that I try to do in my book, man, is and I get people, people, the reviews for my book have been great. And I love this because I'll be honest with you. I was super, super scared, man. I was super scared to get so intimate and let people in so closely to me in this book. Because I end up letting them in in a way that, like, if you're reading it with your spouse, you will go, oh my gosh, honey, this Black man just said some crazy ish. Let me tell you about it. (laughs) Um, Because I invite you into my world so closely. But my hope was that if I were to do that, it would begin to make you think things and thoughts like, What if Tyler was my physical brother? What if my child was walking through some of the same things that Tyler walks through? How would I feel as a father? How would I feel as a mother? If I knew that my son as a white man, my son was walking down the street or jogging because he was just trying to get to a bench where he likes to pray and seek out God's advice, and he had to take down his hoodie and take off his headphones and his and his bandana and his glasses and put on a smile just to walk across the street street so he wouldn't scare people. How would that make me feel about my son? How would it make me feel about the woman who was being scared by my child? And hopefully, and uh, I take my coffee black, I'm allowed to let people in to begin to ask those questions of who are we that we, we turn our, our, our heads so easily at individuals who are losing their life just for living? <laughs>
0: Presidencies can be found anywhere fine podcasts can be found, and is a proud member of the Evergreen
2: Podcast Network. Hello, everyone.
0: Have your parents read the book, Tyler?
1: Oh, yeah, man. (laughs) How did that go? (laughs) In my book, I talk a lot about my father and him being in the military. And one of the reasons why it was important for me to talk about my dad being a military man is that I don't know why this is, man. I don't know why this is. But it's very hard sometimes for white people to picture and or understand that we have military family as well. Like, (laughs) there's this weird assumption of you don't understand— this you must. You're a Democrat, or you're a whoever, and you don't understand weaponry or whatever. I'm like, my, my, I come from a, a military family. Like my dad is from the South. My grandma used to sleep with a gun under her pillow, homie. Like, I, you know what I mean. So I talk about my father, but I talk about what it's like to go through uh, living with a man who was never someone who encor- was was encouraged himself. Therefore, he didn't pass that on to his son. And so I talk about how difficult it was to never really be seen by my father. And with my mother, I talk about how she had to work so hard as a Black woman to get to the place he is now in Las Vegas. I call her the Oprah Winfrey of Las Vegas because she has become so successful. Um, But I tell some pretty hurtful stories about our life. And um, the other thing in the book is I cuss a lot. Right. Um, (laughs) And so when I first turned in the chapter to my mom for her first to read, her first reaction, Ken, was, son, (laughs) are you sure that you want to use this language in this book? And I told my mom, I said, Mom, listen, I'm about to write 18 chapters of a book. The only person I don't cuss in front of is you you and kids. Okay. So I, there's no way I'm about to write 18 chapters and she, and once she got into it, she got it because she understood I wasn't using it to be, you know, you know, bad or anything. I was just part of who I was. And the second part was my father. I love this. And you have to understand black. There's a reason why there aren't a gazillion black biographies. Okay. Because black people ain't trying to tell a family business. Right. And my dad says to me, um, I said, dad, I'm writing this book, man. And he goes, okay, cool. You know, there's certain things you can't talk about, right? Uh-oh. <laughs> I said, yes, sir. <laughs> I said, yes, sir. But what I did say to him was I said, dad, I am going to talk about. This is actually funny, Ken. I said to him, Yo, dad, I'm going to talk about how when I stopped doing sports and I started doing musical theater, you never came to anything I ever did. And my dad goes, hey, wait a minute. Wait a minute, son. I, I came to that that thing. And he goes, Jerry, which my mom's name. Jerry, what was that thing I went to that Tyler did? Now I've been performing all of my life, Ken, and my dad had to go. Um, Jerry, what was that thing that I went to? Which my mom was like, you didn't go to anything, Milt. <laughs> just, just take this one for the team. Let the boy tell his story. <laughs> she had your back. Um,
0: <laughs> your your folks, you, your dad didn't just grow up in the South. He grew up in. Utah Alabama mm. and I, I say this as a kid who spent my high school years in Montgomery, Alabama oh. I, I know where Utah is and um, I mean that has got to be a, a formative experience um, yeah and, and I, I want you to t- just paint the picture for us and I think maybe the best way is to talk about the the Utah massacre.
1: Yeah, And
0: the message that that
1: sent at the time and how it reverberated through generations. Here's what's fantastic about Utah. I talk about this in chapter two in my book, a a trip that I took as an eight-year-old kid. If you go to Utah now and you're going towards um, Mississippi and you get off on the Utah exit and you take a right, you can either take a right or you can take a left. If you take a left, you're going to go into a little bit more of the city portion, but you take a right, you're going to go where um, a predominant amount of, of the black people in that city live and they all live in one area and that's where my mom and dad grew up and it's nothing but black folks it is just it's just black folks central now it to this day Ken, it is the same way to where we pull up to the the country store which my mom and dad have now bought it was owned by white people but they grew up going to this little country store in their area but now that my mom and dad got some cash they're like we're going to own that shit and they bought it. So thank God. Um, a black owned business in that community. As soon as you pull up to the country store, everybody in that city knows you're there. Every black person in that city knows like you have arrived in their little country. That's Utah, Alabama. My parents were raised in an environment where raking the dirt, which is literally just making sure the dirt looks okay. was important in their community because that is what they had to take care of. Um, if you go today, Ken, it's still the same way. But the Utah massacre took place years ago in that in that same city where um, I joke with my dad my mom and dad in the book about when my dad's telling me about him being raised and he was raised a sharecropper. And as he explains what a sharecropper is, I say to him, dad, you were kind of a slave growing up. And my mom was like, boy, he was not a slave. And my dad was like, don't listen to your mom. I was a slave. You know, <laughs> like this was the world they lived in. And this is just my parents. But in their lifetime, there was an experience that took place there where People, black people, wanted to begin to have the right to vote. And because they had the numbers, they took on the responsibility to do so. And instead of white people finding ways, like political reasons as to um, win a vote or to change the narrative of a story through politics, they did the things that white people could do at that time which was kill Black people. Within the Utah Massacre, they killed a handful of individuals. And the handful of individuals that they killed stopped the voting process. It changed the voting process. It switched over the environment because they literally took people's lives. Now, this is known in history as the Utah Massacre, And my mother and father did not know that that took place in their city until they read my book and heard me tell them about it. That tells you not only how we bury the history of our Black stories, that also tells you what we do to keep Black people ignorant so that they don't know how to fight against historical moments or to use those things to fuel us on to get change. And so that story of the Utah massacre is now being shared there in Utah because people are reading about it in my book. And I'm hoping that more people get to hear that story.
0: Well, that is similar to my experience um, going to high school in Alabama in which stories like that weren't just erased or whitewashed, but the opposing stories, the perpetrators were elevated. Uh, Our main (laughs) rival high school was Jefferson Davis High School. Right? Oh, uh, Robert E. Right. Lee High School is right around the corner. And it wasn't until I left the South that I learned about, for example, the Tulsa Race Massacre in 21 right. or the coup right. in, in, in Wilmington. And I, I guess I'm grateful that some of this history is finally being— revived and taught, but boy, it's encountering some headwinds. You have all of these state legislatures now saying, we don't want to teach our kids anything that might make them feel uncomfortable. How do you react to something like
1: that? That's insane to me out of this simple fact, Ken. When I tell you it's insane, it's insane. Ken, we as black people don't know our history. Like... I want you to think about it like this, man. Think about all the history that we know and that we've been taught and that we have U.S. history classes. What are you teaching in those classes if not solely the victorious lives of white people and what you've accomplished? Forget about educating white people for a second. Forget about that, okay? If black people don't know their history, They walk down a street and see a monument and they attempt to try to figure out why that monument is important or they're told from only one aspect and we're told to respect a monument of an individual who became known for killing our people. And we have ignorance, like we're able to just go bypass a a landmark and go, huh, no big deal, because we're ignorant to it and not ignorant in the negative context, ignorant in that we have been taught to ignore that history. So when I hear about that, I'll be honest with you, man, when I hear about critical race theory, don't get me wrong. Sure, I think white people need to learn about black history, but my bigger concern is black people. I want black people to know their history more than white people, I, because we need to. We need to. And so in the midst of these stories about not wanting to talk about critical race theory and this one or the other, who's thinking, is nobody thinking about black kids in this scenario? Yeah.
0: Yeah. I think no one's thinking about black kids in this scenario. I know it was a (laughs) hypothetical question, but I think it's safe to say. Um, Tyler, I want to um, end with your your reflections on the subtitle of your book, because I think it's it's subtly provocative. Uh, The title I read at the top was I Take My Coffee Black, but the subtitle is Reflections on Tupac, Musical Theater, Faith, and being black in America. And I feel like the point you're trying to get across there is that there is a lot of diversity in black America. It's not a monolith. Right. This gets to some of the criticism your video received that, and I I hate that these words are even coming out of my mouth, but people said it wasn't black enough. Can you explain that and how you reacted?
1: Um. Yeah, I I think that (laughs) <laughs> I'm going to use this example. Now, let me be clear. I'm not trying to compare black people to animals. I'm just using it as an example. If you put animals in a cage with no food and you leave them to their own, um, leave them on their own for a long period of time to survive in the best way that they possibly can. People are going to do what they have to do to survive. Their value will change. Their interests may change. When it comes down to simple things like trying to survive just because of hunger, that's where you have conversations about cannibalism and what are people going to do to survive. And I hate to say this, Ken, with the years and years of trauma that black people have, sadly, some of the toughest things that we have to fight against are ourselves. Black-on-Black crime is a real thing Um, and there's reasons behind that, that we don't have the time or bandwidth right now to go into the reasons as to why Black people um, can even sometimes consider themselves enemies against each other. We are in a society now where Black people don't know and or even respect other Black people on other sides of the United States out of ignorance from just simply not knowing from a cultural diversity that has pulled us apart versus brought us together. But I talk about if you go onto a campus of an HBCU, of an exclusively black college university, and you get to see all the the different flavors of African-American, of black people, the beautiful differences between a black person who is a huge fan of, of Tupac Shakur, but also a huge fan of Bon Jovi, a person who eats cornbread and greens, and then a person who eats caviar, Um, There's just such this wide, this brevity of of black people and beautiful blackness that exists. But um, sadly, we live in in a place where we can fight against each other. And in my book, I wanted to do this. I wanted to say, we are not one thing. It is possible for me to know every single word to Straight Trader Compton album and also want to be in Dear Evan Hansen, the musical like um, I can also talk. And this is a secondary theme that I think is really important. If I can focus on this for a minute, I talk about faith and I talk about in my particular world, my relationship with God, with Jesus and how significant that relationship is, but also how difficult it can be sometimes. And it's something that black people in the black church, our relationship and walking with Jesus tends to be very different. And when I say in the black church, I don't mean technically and literally in the black church. I'm talking about black being our black in our relationship with God, how different that can be to the kind of whitewashed picture of a white evangelical relationship with this Jesus that sometimes represents a flag or is connected to nationalism. But I let you in very, very real to my struggles as a man of faith, tied into hip-hop, tied into culture, tied into dreaming, tied into failures, because I believe that broken recognizes broken. Failures recognize failures. As I've gotten older in my life, I believe that the things that you have failed at are the things that tell me much more about who you are than the things that you've won. And so the simple answer to your question as far as not being monolithic is you are completely right. I wanted to pour this glass full of all of these differences. And what I love about it with black folks that are reading the book, because it's now out of the context of just a three minute video, is that they're able to go, "Okay, bro, I get it. I get I get what you're saying. Like, I didn't know you were raised up in a gang-infested area in Las Vegas in junior high. But I also didn't know that, you know, you accidentally stumbled into a theater class, and that changed your life. I feel you because I understand your story. And my key and my hope is, is that the more we understand our story, the more we understand each other.
0: Yep. And I think that's a beautiful paraphrasing of MLK's observation Tyler, it's been incredible having you on, uh, a real honor. We end every episode with the same question. What is the bravest decision that you've ever made? And you can't say goat yoga for this one.
1: <laughs> um, that's easy, man. Um, and I'm going to try not to get emotional about this. Um, last year, right around this time, I was diagnosed with a rare form of cancer called liposarcoma, um, December of last year, 2020, right after I finished reading the book, writing the book. And um, I had to have a super invasive surgery, which they removed a 28-pound cancerous tumor and one of my kidneys. And as I spoke to my urologist right the day before I went into the surgery, I said to him, "Um, buddy, I know you don't know who I am. But I still have a lot of stories to tell, and I have a lot of world to change. So I need to not die. (laughs) And um, I started crying, and that that urologist went home that night and watched every single video associated with Tyler Merritt Project, and he came back the next day and said, you are not kidding. A lot of people come to me and they go, try to keep me alive. But he goes, I feel like I need to keep you alive. And... (laughs) I remember in that moment, Ken, um, thinking that the bravest thing that I have ever done is allowed people into my life to really get to understand my story. Because if my story all had just nothing but W's on the list, you know, if it was all just wins, I feel pretty proud about it. But I'm letting people into my life to experience my losses. And even as I sat there right before my surgery, I started debating if I had made the right decision. But considering one of the chapters in my book is called Never Gonna Be President Now, AKA Your Husband Found My Pictures, um, and me walking through the truth in those moments, the bravest thing I ever did was to let people into the realness of who I am in hopes that our realness will help bring us together.
0: Well, we are all so lucky you did, Tyler, uh, and I'm lucky to be able to get to talk to you. Let's do it again.
1: Thanks, Ken. I appreciate you, bud.
0: You got it. Thanks again to Tyler for joining me. Make sure to check out his new book, I Take My Coffee Black. You can also follow him on Twitter at, at TTM Project and on Instagram at the Tyler Merritt Project. Thanks for listening to Burn the Boats. If you have any feedback, please email the team at kharbaugh at evergreenpodcasts.com. We're always looking to improve the show. For updates and more, follow us on Twitter at team underscore harbaugh. And if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to rate and review. Thanks to our partner, VoteVets. Their mission is to give a voice to veterans on matters of national security, veterans' care, and issues that affect the lives of those who have served. Vote Vets is backed by more than 700,000 veterans, family members, and their supporters. To learn more, go to votevets.org. Burn the Boats is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Our producer is Declan Roars, and Sean Hoffman is our audio engineer. Special thanks to Evergreen executive producers Joan Andrews, Michael DeLoya, and David Moss. I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Burn the Boats, a podcast about big decisions.
2: History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures.